Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. We're going to tackle three big issues today, Connor. Just three? Just three, plus a few ancillary issues. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, First issue is, does a Derek Chauvin juror t-shirt mean the the officer will get a new trial? Just a t-shirt. Just a t-shirt. Well, he was wearing more than a t-shirt. We'll see. That's good. I'm glad. But the t-shirt had, uh, you know, get your knee off of my neck or Mm. or words to that effect. And and so he had uh, said he had not been to a protest and some people are saying uh, it wasn't exactly truthful. Mm. So that's going to be a grounds for appeal. And also, relatedly, why do the feds get to try the George Floyd cops twice? Ah, the intricacies of our system. So strange. Yes, we're going to get into that. Uh, Secondly, we're going to get into the Supreme Court taking on a big gun issue. It's been about a decade since the Supreme Court has really sunk its teeth into gun control, gun rights. Is the Supreme Court about to let everybody carry a gun anywhere, anytime? Dear sweet God. We're going to get into that. And finally, we're going to talk about uh, the California wealth tax. Is California about to tax the wealth of its residents even a decade after you move out of California yelling and screaming. Oh, I can't wait. Can they do that? And we're going to launch a new segment, mercifully at the very end of the podcast. You don't even have to stick around for it if you don't want. (laughs) You'll want to. Once you hear what it is, you may not. It's what pissed Royal off this week. So after we talk about the the real legal issues, uh, we'll talk about what pissed me off. A couple of things, you know, pet peeves. So, uh, But before we get to the three big issues, I I did have a couple of uh, quick news items. Uh, Cornholing is in the news. (laughs) And why a judge should never be sarcastic because it can make the difference between life and death. So cornholing, cornholing, as you may or may not know, is a game where you toss a beanbag about 20 feet into a hole in a four-foot-by-two-foot board. One end of the whole, uh, board is elevated, so there's this hole, you toss the beanbag. The game and, is meant to be played while inebriated. Uh, maybe, but here's why I, I'm mentioning it. You know, I'd heard about it uh, a couple of years ago, but I was flipping channels, and it's on ESPN2, awesome. admittedly. It's not Sports Center. it's not ESPN1, it's on ESPN2. There are two commentators, as if it's a real sport, and the, these athletes, I'm using the term loosely, it's kind of like bowling. They're about 300 pounds. They can smoke and they can drink and they can play cornholing uh, anytime they want while doing all three things. The, the strange thing is, uh, uh, before a couple of years ago, I don't know about you, Connor, I had never heard of the sport of cornholing. I learned about it on the air uh, when I was uh, guest hosting on KBC Radio, and Rob Marenko was the newsman. And so uh, I was was, uh, interviewing a lady who was the president of the North American Nudist Association, 
And so Rob, of course, was there to, to pitch in and, and ask even better questions than I would ask because he's a certified newsman. And so uh, we're talking to her about what it's like to be, you know, head of this nudist organization. And she says, yeah, we have these uh, get togethers, you know, picnics and outings. I said, innocently, well, what do you do at the at the outings? And she said, well, uh, we we're partial to cornholing. Sure. Who isn't? And I just totally lost it. And Rob lost it. And it was the interview was totally destroyed. I believe she felt we were disrespecting her. Why? I don't know. But anyway, maybe it, she just said it in a to- funny way. That's to- why <laughs> it was totally laughing. ruined. It's really I her had, fault. Did you have any idea that this was an ESPN thing? I mean, it's actually on cable. It's I a mean, regular I'm thing. not surprised you see darts on ESPN. You see bowling on ESPN. These are great. Great games, all originally designed to be played while inebriated. They're great. I suppose, I guess. The other thing I wanted to get into is, I mentioned it's a lesson for a trial judge. Don't be sarcastic. California Supreme Court this past week reversed a 20-year-old death sentence after finding the trial court judge had committed prejudicial misconduct. They issued a 143-page opinion. Uh, The uh, court uh, was talking about the conviction of Don uh, Nieves, who was found guilty by a jury of a horrific crime setting a house fire in 1998 that killed her four young daughters. But the justices of the Supreme Court found that Judge Jeffrey Wyatt of the L.A. Superior Court displayed impatient, undignified, and discourteous behavior. Wow. Uh, The fact of the matter is, he, according to the high court, made it really clear in front of the jury through inappropriately disparaging and sarcastic remarks that he was really down on the defense attorney. And it it went across the line so badly that they felt, you know, it's just not fair. uh, And they're going to give this woman a new trial in terms of her sentence, life versus death. It is tough when you've got a when you've got a a judge who doesn't remain impartial in front of the jury. It can give the implication to the jury that the judge is signaling to them the, the right outcome or the judge is. Uh, you know, exasperated with the wrong side because they're, you know, acting in bad faith, right? Two lawyers come in and make arguments and they they are to be evaluated. And if the judge is angry at one of them and and emotional with or sarcastic at one of them, that can give the the implication to the juror that despite the fact that this lawyer is is saying what he or she is saying, that they're, the judge has decided that they're not trustworthy, that they're not a good person, that they're not worthy of respect, and thus their ideas are also not trustworthy or worthy of respect or whatever. And when life and death are on the, uh, the line, that's a very dangerous thing. And it's super dangerous when you consider the fact that jurors look to the judge as kind of a father or mother figure. Uh, they are the ones in a position of authority. And although in a jury trial, the judge is not supposed to is sort of tilt one way or the other in terms of which way a jury should vote. The fact of the matter is these jurors, they're not lawyers. They're not judges. They're at sea and they rely on the judge being unbiased and the person, unlike the lawyers who have an axe to grind, the person who's really steering them down the middle. And if somebody perceives the judge is tilting one way or the other, that's huge. And that's yeah, why the absolutely. California Supreme Court was was so focused on this. The, the, the mantra you hear about, for example, jury instructions, which are part of trials where the judge reads off a long list of instructions to say things like this is what murder means or this is what a contract means or whatever to explain the basics of the law to the jurors if they need to know them. Um, the, the mantra you hear is if the judge says it, it's like the word of God. 
the jury will believe it and will trust it. That's the whole point of having the judge say it. So what the judge says is way more important than what some lawyer says. Yeah. So whereas the the jury has the right to make determinations about credibility of witnesses and decide factual issues with somebody at the scene of the crime or not, they have no uh, right to, to question these instructions. The instructions are the law of the land as explained, hopefully in plain English, by the judge. And in fact, uh, judges and lawyers work really hard for decades to try to craft instructions, as you say, defining elements of crimes and, and civil matters to make sure it's clear and accurate and it summarizes, synopsizes the actual law. So yeah, it's uh, it's not a surprise that the Supreme Court would be willing to uh, to... Uh, actually uh, change a, a sentence and say, you know, you're going to have a new trial on death versus life. But, you know, it, it's kind of academic, Connor, because California has not had an execution since 2006. Right. The governor has said he doesn't believe it. And so he's basically putting every death sentence on a moratorium. Right. Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon says, I don't believe in de the death penalty. I'm instructing all my prosecutors don't file for the death penalty. It yeah. doesn't matter how many people were killed and, and how horrendous the, the situation right. was. We're not going for it. So it's kind of academic, but it's uh, that's the rule in that in case. In this state, at least. That's right. So let's get to our first big issue. Does a, a Derek Chauvin juror t-shirt means that the officer should or will get a new trial. So the deal is Brandon Mitchell is the name of one of the jurors who agreed to speak. And so everybody knows who he is. There is a photo of him attending a March on Washington in August 2020, uh, commemorating MLK's I Have a Dream speech. The uh, photo shows him wearing a T-shirt with Martin Luther King's likeness, and then the words, get your knee off our necks, is on there, and also BLM for Black Lives Matter. Uh, George Floyd's family spoke at the march, so a Minnesota television reporter uh, asked him after uh, the trial was over and he was talking to the press, he said, well, were you there to take part in a voter registration rally uh, or to protest what happened to George Floyd or what? And he said, no, I was not there to protest. And that's the key question, because when he was going through the jury selection process, he and all the other prospective jurors were asked, have you ever been to a protest having anything to do with this George Floyd case? And he said no. So the defense is now going to say, your honor, judge, you got to give us a new trial because this juror lied. And once the judge turns down this motion for a new trial, as people are guessing he will, he's going to make the argument up the appellate ladder in Minnesota. So, Connor, you're going to put your uh, predicting hat on and, and tell me whether you think he's going to get uh, a new trial based on uh, this information about this one juror. Yeah, I don't think this would be enough to get a new trial. Um, the fact that there's any amount of wiggle room at all in terms of whether he attended a protest versus a rally versus a march um, and what he was there for, whether he was there to protest for, you know, against police brutality, even if in the most extreme circumstance that the, the judges um, decide on appeal uh, that... <clears throat> Okay, yeah, he was there for a protest because protest is a big, broad term, and he should have responded in right. the affirmative. Uh, even in that scenario, and when they decide that it's a police brutality or anti-police brutality march specifically, I still don't think that's enough to to overturn the outcome and get a new trial. I think judges are likely very hesitant, and appellate panels are likely very hesitant to overturn uh, a jury that, you know, had hours and hours of deliberation uh, and 
in on which there were probably people with lots of uh, preconceived notions and judges know, just like lawyers know, that people who uh, either want to be on juries or don't mind being on juries or want to get off juries will, uh, you know, lie by omission or uh, obfuscate or dodge the question when asked questions in voir dire jury selection. I don't think it would be enough that one of the jurors may have been doing arguably uh, protesting type appearance uh, on this this subject because it's not like that in and of itself is a disqualifying fact, right? If if he had answered yes, I have been to a protest over this. While it's likely that one of the the uh, uh, lawyers would have st- attempted to strike him either for cause or for, with a peremptory challenge for cause being he can't be impartial or peremptories. I just get to choose th- to strike this person. You have a limited number of those. It's but not automatically. It's not automatically right. uh, disqualifying. So it might have been the case that he said, "Yeah, I've been to a protest about about the George Floyd case," uh, and then both sides thought, "Well, maybe he was protesting on our side Plus, and just kept him on." Just as a practical matter, can you imagine the reluctance of not only the trial judge but even at the appellate level to have another trial Very of true. this guy Very in the George true. Floyd case? Yeah. Hey, when we come back, we're going to talk about whether an interview that this juror gave, where he talked about wanting to make history. Might that be a ground for appeal? And also, we're going to talk about why uh, the federal government might have a right to prosecute Floyd's uh, killer, uh, Derek Chauvin, plus the other officers, and whether they might face the death penalty. We're going to get into that, but first, Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe to many lawyers. Yeah, so check us out on whatever podcast platform you use, or maybe another two or three just to, to help us out. Uh, leave us a review, um, you know, stars or numbers or whatever the platform uses. Leave us a comment telling us what parts of the show you like the best and what we should double down on. Uh, and if there are parts you don't like, just keep that to yourself. And, you know, help us out by subscribing to the show as well, because every week we put out a new one and if you get it pushed directly to your podcast inbox through that app it's a lot easier than having to search us out when we uh, post on social media every week and we drop the new show every wednesday morning so uh, stick with us here on too many lawyers This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. Talking about Brandon Mitchell, the uh, juror in the George Floyd case. Uh, the jury convicted uh, just recently, as you know. Brandon, uh, excuse me, Derek Chauvin, the uh, officer. Uh, and one of the things that Brandon Mitchell did was he went on a, uh, a program called uh, Get Up Mornings. And he was asked about, uh, well, what message would uh, you have for, for people about saying yes to jury duty? And he said, well, it's important. We want to see some change. We want to see some things going different. We got to get out there. We got to get into these avenues, get into these rooms to try to spark some change. Jury duty is one of those things. Voting, it's all of these things we got to do. Civic so, participation. Yeah. So these comments by uh, the the juror are going to be uh, asserted by the defense. You can bet on appeal along the lines of, okay, we know, you know, he he was at the protest and he kind of lied about, you know, being on the protest and in the protest, look at the T-shirt. And now we know he had an agenda. He wanted to make history. He wanted to make changes. And is that really right? Now, I don't know if this is going to resonate with the Court of Appeal, but from my personal standpoint, it kind of resonates because I've spent several decades 
representing primarily insurance companies in cases that end up occasionally in front of juries. Yeah. And one of the things we're very concerned about on the defense side is the idea that a juror might want to send a message so that they wouldn't necessarily make a decision in terms of who wins and who loses, and if the insurance company loses, how much they should lose, based solely on the case in front of them. But instead, maybe they've kind of got a political slash grudge aspect to their approach. They don't really have any use for insurance companies. They think they're parasites. They think they're actually evil and rip people off, which was the view of a lot of folks in our society. And it's not really fair, it seems, to have a juror who has an agenda where they want to send a message to insurance companies everywhere, don't you do this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I can see the flip side of it. If you have an insurance company executive who says, look, insurance companies are out here insuring people, saving people's businesses and putting back their lives after you know horrible tragedies or paying out massive sums of millions of dollars in life insurance cases when people people's you know loved ones die and then somebody comes in here and wants to quibble about some contract language and slap them with some sort of giant punitive damage uh, clause that's going to drive uh, a award that's going to drive insurance companies out of business or out of certain sectors of covering people. It's a terrible thing. And you know what? I'm going to you know vote to exonerate the insurance company every time, no matter what. That, in my mind, both of those scenarios that we've described are kind of the exact sort of prejudice that the jury selection process, the voir dire process in an ideal world ferrets out. You get people who don't really care about the issues, who have never thought about the issues. And that, I think, is is a, a key uh, a key distinction in this matter. There are some issues like kind of the existence of insurance companies that we can think of as kind of apolitical in most people's minds. And I know that there are a lot of people out there who will say, oh, no, 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 Connor, you don't understand. The personal is political. Everything is political. You want to talk about the existence of insurance companies? That's political. You want to talk about police brutality? That's political. You want to talk about a case that involves an animal in any way? Well, I'm a vegan, so that's political. No matter what, we're going to say it's political and therefore it's okay for people to have political notions about stuff. I am not quite there. While I do understand the personal being political and how everything can be made political, the language of an insurance contract and how they're drafted and then the way that the insurance companies enforce those, for example, those are not that political and uh, an issue. It's a spectrum. And I think it is a better scenario to have a juror, a juror enter uh, the jury room uh without any preconceived notions about insurance companies are good or insurance companies are bad on one end of the is it political spectrum. On the other end of the political spectrum, on the issues that define our most contentious topics in American politics, like policing, like race, like gender norms, like crime and prison, like all these major issues that or the existence of taxes, whatever, these are the underpinnings of our political discourse, the things that we talk about in politics all the time, 95% of the time. And if somebody doesn't have any opinions on those and, oh, I don't care about those, that's odd to me. That's, that's strange to me that right. they're a bizarrely apolitical person. So if you're going to get a random slice of humanity, and when you get a random slice, truly random, not jury selection random, but actually truly random slice of humanity, and you find that your topic, the topic of your lawsuit, largely sparks no interest in the, in, in the jurors, and they go, oh, I don't care, then in that case— I kind of want a bunch of people who say, well, I don't care. Well, but you raise a good you issue. slice the, the population and you get something that nine out of 10 people go, 
dang it, I have a strong opinion about this. I feel very, you know, about the taxes are too high or taxes are too low. In that case, you shouldn't probably shouldn't be deciding that this person's not fit for a jury if it's one of the hottest button political topics in our in our, you know, political and social lives. Of course, people are going to have opinions on them and disqualifying people who have opinions on those things ends up with a jury of people who live under rocks in caves and have no political ideas at all. They're weirdos. I agree. You don't want uh, incurious, clueless people. On the other hand, you don't want prejudicial uh, effects. Uh, It's it's a tough problem. The other issue we wanted to talk about in, in terms of Chauvin is we now know that in the courtroom, at the moment the jury verdict was announced in the George Floyd case, when Derek Chauvin was pronounced guilty, if he had been pronounced not guilty, we know that some nice men from the federal government were in the courtroom and they would have walked up to him and said, oh, well, congratulations, Officer Chauvin. You see these handcuffs we've got here? They have your name on them. They were going to arrest him mm-hmm. for a violation of federal laws in terms of violating the constitutional rights, the civil rights of George Floyd. And we now know, of course, that he was convicted. And within a matter of several days afterwards, the feds announced we're indicting. We are indicting uh, Derek Chauvin and the other three officers involved for failing to stop him, for failing to give medical aid. So this so is a, some um, people are raising the question of whether that's fair that to subject him to a second trial. Yeah. Now that he I mean, what about the double double jeopardy rule? Right. And I think the answer is the courts have looked at it and said, you know, it's OK for a separate court court system, the feds, to look to a federal uh, uh, law that was violated, namely the Constitution to be free from uh, unreasonable searches and seizures and violating uh, George Floyd's civil rights. So he is subject to a second trial. So this has come up in lots of other cases, too, like Rodney King, where there were two trials, OJ, where there there were two trials, although OJ's second case was a civil case over money, unlike the Rodney King case, I believe. in this case, yeah, Rodney King involved both money and right violations. Uh, uh, second uh, criminal case, right? So the the second criminal case issue comes up under uh, the uh, U.S. Code nineteen eighty three, I think. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm probably getting the the number wrong. One of those four digit numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I lost the number. You know, I had it before the show. I promise. Uh, but uh, this this section of the U.S. Code that says uh, violating people's civil rights is a crime, and specifically um, uh, the the you know the important uh, cases where you're violating people's civil rights are the ones where the government or a representative of the government is doing it. So you have cops who are beating Rodney King, or you have uh, the cops and the way they treated Derek Chauvin. And th- those George people- George Floyd. T- thank you. Sorry. The way, de- <laughs> yes. the way that Derek Chauvin treated George Floyd. You have a, a separate law that says this is uh, illegal because it violates the Constitution, because the Constitution protects people's civil rights. And so the, th- the thought behind double jeopardy is you can't have somebody- uh, who's a mean, bad prosecutor who tries somebody for murder, fails because the jury says, no, this guy's innocent. And then they just go fish for another 12 jurors, try the same guy again with the same crime, with the same evidence, same everything. And they just keep doing it until they get lucky and hit a random string of 12 jurors right. who are mean enough to convict the guy. That's the danger of double jeopardy. This dodges that danger by, first of all, there's only one more trial. It's not like they can keep doing this forever. It's just one more. And it's also in the federal system under a different federal crime. So, for example, if you if you if I were to punch you, I might violate uh, multiple 
laws. I might I might violate a state law that says in California, nobody should assault anybody else. And if they do, they should uh, spend a year in prison. And I might also violate a federal law that says in the United States, it's illegal to punch a person who is engaged in the practice of, you know, saving lives as a doctor. And, and a bunch case, of TV shows bring this to mind because often you see, you know, the tough, gruff federal prosecutor or cop coming in and saying, this is our turf. And the, the local mm, state yeah, guy says, yeah. oh, no, we're going to go after it. And that, right. that happens happens in real life. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it, the fact that these are, are the same acts, the same actions at the same exact moment in time happen to violate more than one law, that's a totally reasonable thing. It's just that in state court, when you ha- are charged with multiple crimes, uh, you might they might say, well, uh, we'll stack those up. Maybe it was arson, maybe it was battery, maybe it was this, that, etc. And then they decide what the final uh, action was. Well, he punched somebody, but his fist was on fire, so it's more like assault than it is arson. And then whatever, or, and if he's convicted of multiple, this is a very strange hypothetical I put together, but I, I'm enjoying it. Uh, if you're convicted of multiple, then the, the topic of lesser included offenses comes up. And in this case, uh, Derek Chauvin was convicted on three counts, but they don't run consecutively. Only the most serious one is going to run. But say that one's overturned on appeal, then the second most serious one would run because the second most serious is what's called a lesser included offense. So in this case, we charge people and try them multiple times for multiple crimes all the time. We just do it all in one trial. And the idea with the federal laws is you can't do those in the same courtroom at the same time as the state laws because it's a whole different system. They use different rules for the jurors, different numbers of jurors, different rules for their civil procedure, federal versus state. So you have to separate them out and force the person to go through multiple trials. But it's a lot like being charged with both manslaughter and murder at the same time based on the same actions. It's okay. You just get one crack at the person per law that they broke. So when we come back, we are going to talk about whether you should be allowed to carry a gun anywhere, anytime. Oh, I already do. California. Is that illegal? Yeah, we're going to have to talk about that. Uh, California, the U.S. Supreme Court actually is going to be getting into that issue very quickly. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So the uh, California, excuse me, the U.S. Supreme Court is about to look into the question of whether you should be allowed to uh, have a concealed carry, carry a gun any place you want, any time you want. So we know that uh, more than 10 years ago, the Supreme Court in the Heller case resolved a 200-year dispute about that Second Amendment. Gee, that, that's one way to think militia about it. Is to just or they made it. up new law after 200 years of it being settled. But, you know, whatever you want. However you feel yeah, about yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it's it's the law of the land. Yes. So they said that the Second Amendment supports the right of individuals to own guns. But they also upheld reasonable restrictions, including banning guns in sensitive places like schools and government buildings. Since then, the California, the U.S. Supreme Court has been very quiet when it comes to guns. But now they have just accepted a New York case regarding that state's law limiting concealed weapon permits only to those people with good moral character who show proper cause for a gun license. The NRA and others had sued saying the general fear of crime is a sufficient justification to let somebody have a concealed weapon permit. So that's the question that's going to be before the U.S. Supreme Court. Does the right of self-defense extend beyond the home? 
And of course, you got three members of the U.S. Supreme Court appointed by Trump who may well be pretty receptive to this gun rights angle. And of course, before that, you got uh, Alito and Clarence Thomas. Who knows where Robert stands on this? But even if he joined the three liberals, still, uh, there would just be four of them uh, up against this. Uh, you, you have any guesstimate, Connor, as to how this uh, this new uh, newly constituted U.S. Supreme Court might come out on this? Yes, I think that the most likely outcome is a conservative uh, uh, majority uh, utilizing all of Trump's appointees uh, who come down on the side of uh, expanding the right to bear arms to include individuals who uh, have a reasonable fear of crime. They will be very narrow in their uh jurisprudence and they will they will limit they will seek at least to limit their holding to say this is not to say that anybody can carry a bazooka into any federal building like i don't know the supreme court just because they want to they're going to say that you can't limit uh gun rights to just a certain slice of good people because that's too dangerous and also not what the supreme court's i mean what the uh, constitution says they're going to instead say the right to bear arms comes from xyz and therefore uh, we have to be very inclusive in our uh, allowances of letting people uh, have these weapons is that going to be a bad verdict yeah i think that's going to be a very bad verdict because the idea basically is is that by by as a result of the fact that there are these words, the right to bear arms, in a uh, a, a very, very old, multiple hundred-year-old document, at, we're going to outsource the decision-making for how best to prevent crime and gun deaths uh, to random members of the general public and use their intuition for whether they are safer and everyone else is safer if they carry around uh, projectile-launching uh, hot lead machines— at all times. That is a very dangerous, bad outsourcing. We have experts who should make these decisions for us. We do have experts who make these decisions for us on lots of topics, like should you have to, you know, wear a mask during a global pandemic? Or should you not be able to drive a car that crushes every car in, it, in its way just because it makes you safer? And everything else, because we understand that experts can make good decisions. I'm very, very, uh, worried that this sort of uh, that our current Supreme Court makeup will start throwing around willy nilly uh, blanket declarations about the fact that, well, it says it in the Constitution. And since all we do is read the text of the Constitution and then parrot it like a robot, all we got to do is let people have more guns. That's a very scary thing for me. I mean, our country is plagued by gun violence every single day. You, you, you know, hear about mass shootings uh, here and there, uh, all over, schools, churches, everywhere else. You, you hear our, our, our cops live their lives on edge, afraid uh, of, uh, of being shot at any moment because anybody could have a gun. It's not a safe way to build a society. But Well, we should get an answer to this in probably five or six months. By then, we'll have had the oral argument and the decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. Are you going to handle that oral argument, maybe? You know, if I've got time, I'll yeah. see if I can work it into the old schedule. You're pretty busy. Uh, absolutely. So our final topic, uh, the wealth tax. Uh, Connor, people remember the wealth tax because Elizabeth Warren was really big on it when she was running for president. Yeah. You know, there should be a wealth tax in this country. Yeah. And the idea is, uh, okay, you make your money, you work all year, and 
and you say to the IRS, okay, I, I made this money, and so I'm going to send in 30 or 40 or 50 percent, whatever it is to you. Okay, we tax the income. But then the wealth tax says, okay, that was interesting. That was fun taxing your, your income a few years back. We couldn't help but notice, but you still have some of that, mm-hmm. and it's your net worth. You've got money. You've got diamonds. You've got real estate. Your, your, your wealth is really big. We want some of that, too. Mm-hmm. And California is about to pass a wealth task. Yeah. A tax. It's a proposal being debated here in the Golden State. Uh, so if you've got money or assets of any kind uh, above $30 million, and I know you're working on that. Yeah, right? I, I might be 29, 29 and a half, somewhere in that ballpark. So if you've got more than $30 million, the government is going to take four-tenths of 1% of that wealth every single year. So Four-tenths of 1% yeah, yeah. for and, people and who I'm have gonna more than you. $30 million. Yes, I'm going to help you with some math. Please. Uh, assume you're Bill Gates. I am. This is pre-divorce. He, sure, th- sure. You'd have sure. to cut everything down by half. Yeah, yeah, Or yeah. more if she gets a really, really good divorce lawyer. That's true. Uh, but let's assume you're Bill Gates and you're worth $136 billion, $30 million. Okay? Uh, as you made that money, of course, you were paying taxes on it. Now the government says, hey, uh, Bill, we're going to tax it again. Uh, of your $136 billion, $30 million, we get to take 0.4% of your money above $30 million and as it happens, I've, I've done the math. 0.4% of 136 billion is 544 million dollars. Give it to us now. Right. Why? Because you're really rich, and we want to spend it on really neat stuff. Yeah. And Bill Gates says, "But I already paid taxes on the money every year. Plus, this wife of mine is about to take half." half yeah. And the government says, "Sorry." Yeah. Now, it gets even better in California. Not only are they going to take your wealth, and by the way, they're not promising that they'll never lower uh, the number, the, the 30 million down to 20 or 10 or 5 or 1 million. And they're not promising they won't increase the 0.4 of 1%. But, you know, who knows what the future may bring. Right. But the, but, the, the fear is that somehow by passing a wealth tax on the super wealthy, the Thirty million pluses that that makes it easier to then move that number down in the future or move mm-hmm. the percentage tax up. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that it does make it easier, but it might. So here's the postscript in yeah. California. You're just going to love this. I'm going to love it. Uh, the the the, <laughs> the folks in Sacramento who are going to pass this law. They're saying to themselves, you know, we're worried that these rich people are just going to leave California to avoid paying this wealth tax. Probably but we've are. got a solution. Yeah, we're saying that if you leave California, you still have to pay the wealth tax for the next 10 years, yeah. even if you're no longer in California. Wow. But we're going to be nice about it. We're going to only take 90% of the tax you'd pay in the first year, 80% the second year, 70% the third, so that after a decade, even the, you don't have to pay us any longer. Nice. And that's running into some some feed, uh, some feed, resistance. People are saying, we're not sure that it's constitutional to, to tax someone you're, after you're, you've left. left. Yeah, you're not in the uh, enjoying the roads or the infrastructure right, or, right, or right. being able to watch Gavin Newsom on TV, which is worth something right yeah, there. For sure. So I don't know. You, do you think that might survive a, a court test, Connor? It's tough. I mean, if you if you earn income in California, but you are not a resident, then you still pay tax on it. If you earn income and are a resident and then you move out of the state, you don't get to earn income all year and then move the month before you know April 15 rolls around and dodge all the taxes. I think it would be a tough sell. I think that especially given our current Supreme Court, if it ever got there, uh, it would be a very tough sell to say that you could tax people after they have left the state. I don't know that it should be a tough sell because 
this is a good way of dissuading people from dodging taxes. And that's really what this issue is about. The concept of a wealth tax is not actually like the most liberal thing in the universe. I used to have, I actually had a professor in, in law school who was a property, my property professor who dealt with a lot of you know property law issues and uh, t- taxes you know, related, not exactly as not the tax professor, but he was very pro wealth tax. Um, he actually wrote a book uh, called Taxing Women um, in which he talked about the differences, differences between uh, wealth taxes and uh, income taxes. And, and really we have in our society uh, made the decision that we're going to tax income because uh, people generally make income as a result of their availment of, of themselves, of the, the state's resources. You get income That's a by, fancy word, availment. A, you know, I'm not sure I've know. used that for weeks. I don't know if it's even correct. Uh, <laughs> but you, you make income because you live in California and you work hard here and you benefit from the fact that there's infrastructure and roads and the employers here and all this other stuff. And But- the, the concept of a wealth tax is basically saying, look, folks, if you make more than $30 million a year, what are the odds that you have a salary? Jeff Bezos doesn't need a salary, right? Taxing his income is a kind of a pointless, ridiculous exercise. A lot of CEOs and ultra wealthy people and real estate developers and, you know, whoever's the people at the top of the top of the top of the ultra wealthy. They don't draw an income in a strict sense. And in fact, they often just have money and then borrow against the money that they own in order to use to get more money from banks. You who know, are, I see, who see your point, and I'm coming bets. up with an idea here. I mean, really, why shouldn't we say anybody with more than 10 billion, take half of the excess over 10 billion and give it to us because we can do so much good with this. And do they really need it? Yeah, Is I it mean, really necessary well, to could, let somebody have well, you could, all those billions of dollars? You could take 100% over 10 billion. You don't need to take 50. Uh, Nobody needs the there 11 you billion go. Dollars. That, there, We're going to do even point. more good yeah, with that. Yeah, absolutely. But really, the 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 issue is, how do we craft a tax that people can't dodge as well? And the idea of taxing wealth is, well, you, if you sit like Smaug on a hoard of gold and you use you borrow against that hoard of gold and then use that money to go do whatever, you know, buy your yachts and private jets and, and gold-plated uh, bathtubs or whatever it is you do as an ultra-wealthy person, you don't actually have to spend your money. And your net worth goes up at an incredible exponential rate of, because of compounding interest and you get richer and richer and richer, and given that means you're accumulating more and more money, other people are getting less and less uh, rich. This now, business of people, you know, getting more stuff. And, it's the worst. Yeah, it's terrible. No, but the idea is if you tax people, if you punish the strategy of, I just won't gain any income, I will just borrow against my assets, that is a uh, a possible solution to the one of the failures of capitalism, which is if capitalism survives because we move money around, we keep it moving all the time. It's going from one billionaire to another, right? Or from from one billionaire to a thousand people. And then back when they buy stuff off Amazon, the money's got to move. And a wealth tax says, don't sit on a giant pile of gold. Instead, have a smaller net worth and spend that money on ways that in ways that stimulate the economy. Whereas taxing income just punishes people who go to work every day. And that's you know not what? a great you know solution. What? And your point about whether the Supreme Court would put up with this, I, I'm pretty sure they're going to be fine with it because yeah? Chuck Schumer uh, wants four more 
more people on the Supreme Court. So we'll have 13, and I have a feeling it'll survive. I'm excited if he it. gets his. That's way. an unlucky number, but I'll go with it anyway. So uh, I, I said at the top of the show, uh, after we get through the really important legal issues, I was going to just institute right. this new feature: what pissed off Royal this weekend. Mm-hmm. So uh, you don't have to listen, folks, if, if you if you think this would be tedious. But here's oh, what pissed I, me I'm, off: I'm watching the game. Don't worry. I go to the ATM this week, and I've been going to the ATM for, for years and years. Yeah. And depending on just how flush I feel, I always get, you know, 520s or 10, 1020s or, or 30. Damn. Do you know what the option is now? What? I have to pick my denominations. I could have some fives. Mm-hmm. I could have some 10s. I don't want that challenge in my life. <laughs> and I don't want to sit behind some person who's taking 30 minutes trying to figure out what buttons to push to figure out what are they going to let them take it in pennies too? So you're being I'm I'm pissed off about this. Just 20s, that's it. That's That's all that's all the you the option you should get. Yeah. Don't you agree with me? Well, why not? Haven't I convinced you? Wouldn't it be even faster if you were only given hundreds? Uh, sometimes I just don't have that much in the bank balance, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Right, I figured, yeah. All right, so you're not sympathetic. But, uh, uh, somewhat, somewhat, right. somewhat. I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, and we'll take your attention, and uh, we... We love hope, it. We appreciate we it. We do. really do. We hope to see you next week on Too Many Lawyers. Have a great week. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.